Welcome to the Biotech Podcast, where we talk to the leading scientists in the world about their work, their lives, and fundamental questions concerning their field. Joaquin, welcome to the Biotech Podcast. Thank you, Harry. I'm happy to be here. To start off with, um, I want to ask you, what is networked? science. Okay, so network science is a term introduced by Michael Nielsen. Um, and it refers to the fact that we can do science online, which affords us much faster and better communication than it's otherwise possible. So his tag phrase there is to say that we should take ideas out of our heads and minds and put it online into systems that can organize information and make it really easily accessible and organized for people. And so it's a, it's a steps change from only publishing research in papers um, because, well, then you have to search all these papers, which is not very convenient. And by networking it, we can organize this information in various ways, in databases, on wiki pages, and all these kind of things. Uh, build platforms that make sure that we can easily find the most recent and correct information. Do you see network science as a sort of large paradigm shift from the way scientists work beforehand? Or- it's definitely a different way of working that has definitely not yet permeated everything in science. Uh, you can definitely see some scientific fields are much more advanced than others. Like if you look at astronomy, for instance, they have really well-based systems where images are taken from um, different telescopes and put into online systems. So you can go, you can go on a website and point any point in the sky and look at all the images that were ever taken, at least by some telescopes. Um, So that's a very, that gives you like one platform where all the information is present and easily accessible. Um, and that's, that's definitely not yet possible in all sciences. So it's, it, it takes engineering, it takes a change of mind to do that. And do you see it mainly then, so in terms of network science, to continue breaking down that term, do you see it as something that affects the data people are producing from their experiments as the primary thing or or is it mainly about publications because a lot of science in the past has always been more about publications less about data and it seems like this might be more about data and less about publications yeah it is so this this incentive system in science which i'm not saying is wrong i mean there's obviously not a lot more um benefit to be gained from having breakthroughs uh, in terms of concepts or finding new truths or finding new explanations for things rather than just collecting the data. But you can't, you, you can't make big discoveries without collecting the data. If you look at the history of science, most great breakthroughs, uh, great breakthroughs came because we had better data or we had better instruments, right? Like the, the whole field of neurology is impossible without all these fancy um, imaging equipment that was not available otherwise. You would not be able to make progress in the field without these new kinds of images. Same, if you look at machine learning, um, a lot of the whole breakthrough in deep learning was to a large extent driven by ImageNet, this big data set. 
um, that give you a lot of data to play with. Uh, we're just challenging, which could be used to solve many problems. Um, so data is, is a crucial aspect uh, to, to make progress happen in science. It's also a way to, prog to measure progress. Like if you don't have good benchmark data sets to see how well you're doing, then how would you ever know how fast you're progressing as a science? Genomics is another area that's definitely been opened up by the tools and the data rather than, um, exactly. yeah. rather than anything else. It's a great example of it. So how do you go about convincing people to make data public? Because obviously it relies on the people who are carrying out these experiments or the organizations who are carrying them out to go, to go we're going to give up access to this. We're not going to sort of have any real rights over it and you know, we're just going to let it into the public sphere. We're not going to side with it. How do you, how does one sell that to a person or an organization? So that's a very complicated, um, complex answer, I think. Um, so I think it's part making it easy and it's part creating the right incentives. Um, when we talk about creating the right incentives, uh, a lot of focus there lies, for instance, on funding agencies. Um, like if you are, there's a lot of funding agencies these days that say that if you get public funding for your research, then you should make your data publicly available, unless there's unless there are other reasons like privacy reasons why you should not do that. But um, at least in those cases, I think having that incentive of getting funding for research, if you also make your data available, it's a very strong incentive. Another incentive is not money but reputation. Um, so it means if you do conference, if you do journals, allow people to publish data sets and as, as a proper output of, of science uh, and, and give them the reward that they deserve for building those data sets. And so actually recently, we, we like last week, we uh, created a new um, track in NeurIPS, which is the largest uh, machine learning conference for submitting data sets and benchmarks. Because this was something that was very underrepresented in machine learning. Uh, and, and this gives people uh, a proper um, uh, reputation. Well, it gives them reputation, gives them reward for uh, building good data sets. And that is something that, de that desperately needs to be supported. And not just that, but also it opens up a whole discussion on how to build good data sets. Because yeah, that's that's a that's a hard thing to do, and if there's no discussion going on about how to do that, then yeah, you, you don't get good quality data. I also I find it kind of amazing having gone into the data side of a biological science to find out how little direction one gets in choosing the data sets to approach the problems that you're going to approach. I mean, sometimes it seems to be slightly blind, and you know, there's no one good place and often not many sort of even review papers and things like that that really broach topics of of um of which data sets are good for which type of problems or looking into two two different sets of issues it can be really really difficult so i also saw your thing on the the track at the neural ips which i, I think is fantastic and and is that one of the first times that, that has been done or does do those sort of um data set and benchmarking uh 
papers or, or, or journals exist elsewhere? They, they do exist elsewhere. They also exist in machine learning. I mean, you could always have uh, published data sets at NeurIPS. The problem that we saw was that um, the, co the common way to, rep to review papers does not fit well with data sets and benchmarks. So the, the, oftentimes when you try to publish a data set that you put your heart and soul in, you put a lot, a lot of effort into, reviewers may still dismiss it as this is only a data set or um, maybe they don't know how to review that, right? Uh, and another issue is, for instance, anonymity. Sometimes you can't, if, if a conference requires complete anonymity, how can you submit a, a data set paper, right? Because the people have to look at the data, data needs to be hosted somewhere, and th there are no anonymous places where you can share data sets in, in, the, in the way they're supposed to be viewed, right? So um, for, for that reason, we needed to change the way we do reviewing it. That's why this is a separate track for um, NeuroIPS, where you have these different review guidelines uh, at the one hand, so it makes it easier to submit the data sets. On the other hand, also make sure that data sets are reviewed in a good way, which means we should check whether the data sets have intrinsic biases, whether they are responsibly sourced, whether there are, um, whether there are any bad uses of this data that should have been foreseen that would pre prevent publication of the data. There are also data sets which are public, but it's actually bad to have them publicly because they can be used for very bad intents. Right? For people who have been good about making data sets public, will they harken back to the same benefits as what you try to convince people into it with? So when people have done this stuff and they've made a data set public and they've, you know, they might have then ended up having lots of people that they're not expecting coming up with separate things that they can do on that data set. Are the main benefits that they see still the reputational ones, and um, the reputational the, the reputational ones being the specific main benefits, or do they quite often end up actually getting um, more benefits just from the fact that that data is public and and you know people are genuinely just building better models that they can then go and use themselves? Yeah, so <clears throat> reputation is definitely a good motivator. It's often not the main motivator for people. People build data sets because they're just curious. They just want to solve a problem. And sometimes you have to create data set just to be able to do any kind of research that's interesting to answer new questions. So there's, there's this intrinsic motivation, which is great. I mean, that's why people build data sets and people have been building data sets, of course, uh, for, for, for a long time. Um, but it, at the same time, it's important to have this incentive. So just even just to remove that obstacle of putting so much time into it and then somebody tells you, like, when you do your PhD and, and you, it's time for your defense, um, mm. so that, well, this is not interesting, um, right? So having that accepted as a proper um, way to build reputation is important. Mm. Uh, even if it's just only to remove that obstacle um, and well, make it clear this is an important part of science. Can you take us through some of your favorite examples of, uh, of collaborative science or where this type of thing has worked 
particularly well. I mean, you mentioned the telescope images earlier on. Would that yeah. be up there? And are there others which you sort of look at and you're like, this is the perfect example of what we want to achieve in in other fields? I think anytime when you're, when you're measuring something fundamental and you make it available, that's important. Like the human genome or um, the atlas of the sky or the atlas of the, of the genome. Um, those are definitely all obviously usually important. Right? We, we build these and there are like the, the astronomy example is very good because um, besides the, the platform where they have all the assets, they also issue um, all these papers which are built on it. I think every year there are several thousands of papers which are um, building on that data. So it's a clear um, sign that it's important. Um, in machine learning, we don't really have that. There are some um, things happening, like OpenML is, is one of the things that we worked on making those experiments of people available. And there have been hundreds of papers that have used that and then um, have, have done work that was otherwise impossible. Um, there's also another issue, another initiative called Papers with Code, uh, which uh, organizes papers and the experiments they have. And there's also a very useful benefit, useful resource to check what's the latest and, and greatest in this kind of data set, for instance. Um, helps people to easily find things as well. So you mentioned very briefly OpenML there, which is definitely something uh, I think it might be a good time to go and talk about because okay. it's really the, uh, you know, what, what drew me into a lot of your work and I think is a fantastic initiative. What are some of the sort of addressable issues faced by the ML field that OpenML looks to solve? Right. So, the, well, the, the main goal of OpenL was to have this kind of network science. It still is. Um, so there's a lot of machine learning happening. Uh, there's thousands and thousands of papers um, doing all kinds of research. Um, there are as many algorithms as there are papers. So it's a huge range of algorithms. And, and how would you ever um, get a good understanding about what's there, um, what works, what doesn't work? without actually reading tons and tons and tons of papers and doing lots and lots of experiments. So it's, it's a hard field to get into because it's, well, the tooling is very good, right? There's lots of cool uh, libraries, like Scikit-Learn, TensorFlow, and so on, PyTorch, that, that allow you to easily get started. It's, that's done well. What's hard is like figuring out what works or what doesn't work. And that, that often requires a lot of digging through papers, trial and error understanding. So what OpenL aims to do is organize all the information. Like for every data set, show me all the experiments that anybody has ever run on that data set and to see what works, what doesn't work. What can I learn from that? And if you organize it well, you actually build a huge database of all these different results that you can actually learn from. <laughs> you can do machine learning, all the machine learning results to um, to understand what works does work. And this, is, has, this has also led to a new field called AutoML, uh, automated machine learning and meta-learning, um, where we analyze all this prior information so that we can, we can recommend techniques to people or we can automatically build better algorithms uh, for new data sets. So if you were going to sort of go into the 
details of how it works. How is it that one interacts with OpenML? What 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 can you actually do to it? Do you just upload a data set and then you do the rest, or or is it the actual machine learning task? What are what are the actual components that make um, it possible to address the issues you've just mentioned? And so the first thing, of course, are data sets. So OpenML uh, tries to make lots of data sets very easily available. Um, we don't want people to spend, like it's easy to find data sets, right? You can use like Google a data set search, you can find a data set, but then you need to spend several days trying, well, several hours or days, depending on the data set, um, getting it uh, loaded and doing experiments with it. Because all data sets are different, different formats, different codings, and oftentimes, Things go horribly wrong because of this. Um, and OpenML makes these data sets easily available in a standard format. So it takes you like one line of code to load the data and start building algorithms with it. Data sets are, that's the data sets. Second thing is the tasks. That's basically what you want to do with it. Is it like classification, regression, clustering? Right? And so there we define basically stuff like what's the target, for instance, if, if it's tabular data, what's the target that you want to predict? Like if it's image data, maybe you want to predict whether there's a cancer in this image or not, right? That's the task uh, that you provide. And we also make that available, not just human-readable, but also machine-readable. So machines can actually read this and figure out, okay, that's the thing you need to predict. And then you can write algorithms that build models for that as well. And then you have flows, which are more commonly called pipelines. But they can also be neural architectures. Um, so that's the algorithm, basically. It's the structure of the algorithm, the components that you need uh, to, to build the model. And then there are the runs. The runs are basically the executions of these pipelines or, or, or these neural nets, which give you a trained model that you can evaluate. You can see how well does this algorithm solve the problem? How well does it learn the thing that you wanted to learn? So these are the four main components. And so OpenML offers all of these, organizes all these, right? So you can download a data set, you can train a model, and then upload your model and the evaluation results back into the platform. Right? And so the platform organizes everything. So you can take any of the data sets and you get a list of which are all the algorithms that people have tried on it and how well did these perform. And all this information is available to humans, but also to machines. So it's all machine readable. So you can actually train machines on top of all this information. Um, it's a very interesting area, metal learning and automail, mm. uh, where you learn from this and you use that to automate some aspects um, so you, you can build new machine learning models more efficiently. And so this is all available to the website. Um, the website, you can all browse all the information. And we have APIs in different libraries, like uh, different languages like Python and so on. If you use a library like um, TensorFlow or Scikit-Learn, it's integrated. So you, you can just uh, run the Scikit-Learn pipeline or a TensorFlow model, and it will automatically share the experiments back to OpenML without having to manually annotate anything. So first of all, I want to ask, just so people know where to go if they're listening and they don't have to go to the link, what is the actual website URL? OpenML.org, yeah. OpenML.org. When sort of go so when doing these task flows and runs are you saying that what then happens is locally you generate lots of metadata which then goes up and gets stored in openml or is it something whereby um 
you literally run your model not locally but in a cloud server somewhere um and uh where does most of the actual the the computation i suppose um uh happen good question so um when we decide open ml um this is the big issue where do you run the model um, because that this requires significant compute and so we decided that it's easiest that this happens on the client side, on the user side. Why? Because machine learning is not tied to one particular hardware. You can run machine learning maybe on the Raspberry Pi if you need to be uh, very efficient, or some kind of wearable chip, or it could be a huge GPU farm. Um, we cannot possibly give you all that different resources. So um, we, we want people to be free in, in how they do that. So the way OpenML works is we provide you the data sets in an easy way, the data and all the metadata. You then run uh, the experiments locally. And we build integrations into the most commonly used tool, like Scikit-Learn and TensorFlow, so that you can, if you do that, then it will automatically store all the metadata. It will, it will automatically record what's the exact pipeline that you built. What are the values of your hyperparameters? Um, how much time did it take to build this model? So this, this, this is all annotated automatically. Um, and you get it locally. And if you want, you can also share to the platform. Or you can have your own OpenML instance if you want to locally, uh, if you want to keep it for yourself. So the, the, the whole idea is that um, the annotation happens automatically because I mean, there are other ways of doing it. There are ways that you can just do your experiments and then annotate afterwards. Uh, but that's often difficult because you forget how the things you did. Uh, and it's just, it's also tedious to record everything. Um, there are some way, like the MoldDB kind of approach where you, uh, you add lines of code into your, uh, into your code that to lock certain things. Um, that's also a good approach, but then you need to remember that what to tag, what, what to record and what not to record. If you forget to record something, it's lost. It's also sometimes quite tedious to think about if you need to record. So we sort of want to do that in a more principled way. And so in the OpenML, we basically record almost everything that we can extract automatically from the pipeline that you built or from the neural network that you create. Uh, we annotate it in a universal way, and then we upload that to the platform, so it's easily available to everybody. You talked about the importance of reputation in network science. Mm -hmm. The reputation that comes from the sort of additional benefits that come from uh, starting, even like at your earliest stage of doing machine learning, uh, starting and working with OpenML datasets and, and on or around OpenML, are they all essentially reputation-based? I mean, like when you finish doing something is it are you is there any you know any record that it's you rather than um rather than just you know a run that could be learnt off anyway or, or or where is the reputational benefit that comes into with using openml so we we do store the the, the idea of anybody who uploads anything to openml so if you look at their set you can see you upload it if you look at experiments you can see who built the model and who created the pipeline. Uh, we also have a profile page where you can see how active people are. Um, 
can be useful also to show that you are very active in this area. Um, so yeah, we, we do keep all of that and it's actually quite easy to, if you download a bunch of results in OpenML, you can also see anybody who has contributed to that. Um, there's no easy way to like really say like, well, um, I, I downloaded 5 million experiments and these are the 2000 people who built, who helped that. Um, but we have also something called uh, studies in OpenML, uh, which is sort of in beta right now. Uh, but that would allow us to show if anybody does a study, uh, it would also be able to generate like who, like how many runs by how many people were included in that study. Um, so that's the, we do try to to uh, to make that more clear, and we'll, we're do, we're doing a whole redesign website uh, also to help with that. There were sort of three. Um, I mean, in in one of the papers I read on uh, on OpenML, on the I think it might have been the first paper you did about the actual platform when you were launching it. Uh, you mentioned design serendipity and uh, division of labor. Can you just talk us through why those two things are important for any uh, sort of modern uh, network science tool? So let me just briefly um, explain the phrases, right? So design serendipity means that you design the platform in a way that makes accidental discoveries possible. Right? So it's, um, and now we try to do that by making all different kinds of data sets from all different kinds of fields equally available. Um, and also bringing back all the results people built. Right? So say that I'm a biologist, I, I share some data sets on it. Um, maybe there's some somebody who, will, who invented a new algorithm and it says, well, let's now try it on some data sets I've never seen before, finds your uh, biological data set, runs the algorithm, gets a good results and publishes that on the platform then the person who uploaded the data set they can, then gets a good result, right? Uh, that, that, that's kind of the accidental thing. So the, the people don't know each other. Um, the, the person who uploaded the data was mainly interested in the problem. The person who developed the algorithm was mainly in, in, interested in developing the algorithm and developing the algorithm. But by having them on the same platform, they, they, they serendipitously collaborate and they can see, well, um, or can be also something different, like um, say that you develop a new algorithm, you test it, and then you test it on a data set and it works horribly, right? And, and that that's, it gives you further motivation to change the algorithm so it works also better on these harder data sets, which are maybe not always um, so often studied in machine learning. Yeah, the, the accidental encounters is definitely something I think we um, we we, miss a little bit more now well, i noticed that we missed a little bit more nowadays anyway yeah. sort of new phd student it's really something that i'm looking forward to getting back into is sort of bumping into essentially happening happening to be within the same space whether it be a virtual space or a sort of real space with other people so that you do have those chance encounters that help you look in the right direction and do the right type of work and stuff like that the second one is then dynamic division yeah so that's basically um Having a, a group of different people or tools, right? Not only people um, that are each best of doing certain things. 
Like no person is perfect and doing everything. So there are people who are very good at building good data sets. There are people very good at building good algorithms. Um, so having them on the same platform uh, really allows this. So say that you have, you built a data set, somebody builds an algorithm and says, well, this algorithm works well, but we get bad performance because there are some errors in the data set, right? Um, and then the person who designed the data set can improve the building of the data set and the persons who have developed algorithms can develop the better algorithms. Um, or it could be something um, where the person who understands a problem, this is very important, the person who understands a problem can give feedback to the person who designs the algorithm. And that's something that's often missing. But so, so a person builds a, a data set and then somebody builds an algorithm on it and it works well and the person who builds the algorithm is happy because I get a good result. But then the person who built the data set can say, well, this, this model you built, it, well, it has great accuracy, but it's useless to me because you, maybe you, you use something. This is a, one example was, for instance, from um, physics, um, where they created a data set and they, they made a Kaggle challenge out of it and people built models on it. But the top 10 algorithms were useless because they, they picked up on some signal in the simulator. Um, that, that created the data and used that to make predictions, um, which helps them, but it's, it's from, a, from a physics point of view, it's useless because this is just some artifact of the, of the, the data generated. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's so interesting. So that, 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 um, conver that conversation needs to be there. Yeah, no, no, no. I can see that's definitely the case because quite often, I mean, I work on, by, I work on sort of uh, plant, data sets or, or genomic data sets and and it the time it takes to currently go through the communication system between the people gathering the data and yourselves is is way less fluid than than it could be and it would i'm sure be great for both parties if you know we could all speak a little bit easier and you do sort of have the old email but you know if they're constantly present to see who's working on their data set they might get slightly better at responding to queries and realize that that life of it and if, if you're able to see the benefits of interacting with people and what that causes in terms of the algorithms that are built on top of your data set then i mean i can just see that being a massive sort of positive reinforcement type thing um so you mentioned kaggle very briefly and um so this is for people who don't know it is another essentially uh, platform for I would say competitive machine learning rather than collaborative machine learning, maybe. Um, but I'll let you break it down. What is the difference between what you're doing and Kaggle? Well, Kaggle was this pre-existing platform. It's just for a long time. It's a, it's a challenge platform. So people um, who are interested in solving a problem could be like maybe it's a mining company in Australia that has interesting data, and but they don't know how to build as algorithms, they put it on the platform, they give you an award, like 10,000 euros, and then the person who builds the best model for them wins. It's a kind of way to crowdsource the building of machine learning models. It's a very popular uh, system. And next to Kaggle, there are lots of other uh, systems that do that, like Shellearn, like Crowd AI, and so on. There's a whole range of different platforms that can do that now. Um, uh, recently, uh, Kaggle has also uh, been opening up more. Um, OpenL was already at that time uh, offering public, public data sets 
uh, collecting the algorithm and so on. And Kaggle has also been doing that. So they also have data sets there. And you can share uh, like notebooks uh, with experiments that you do. So it's, it's very useful uh, that all the data is available, all these results are available there. Um, OpenML from the start is it's a different animal in the sense that it's an open source project. Like, well, Kaggle is a company. Uh, it's now part of Google. Um, and OpenL is more like it's, it's a really like it's a it's a living kind of um, community project, uh, which goes into multiple directions. So we're not really offering like a service like Kaggle does. It's like a service for for companies or HR or whatever. Um, it's, it's a platform that goes in different. People use OpenML in more like um, a flexible way, uh, and some in ways we never have foreseen. We basically said we build a platform, we give you good APIs for uploading data, for downloading data, so you can do with the data whatever you want. Right? We're not forcing you into any straitjacket, and, and this allows you to do very interesting things. Um, for instance, there are like there, there are several papers that have downloaded like ten million experiments from OpenML to then build an algorithm that then builds other algorithms. Right? It's kind of the, the the automatic machine learning kind of approach, which is actually going back to design serendipity. It's it's a huge, a very useful thing. Like uh, not just people. But if you upload a data set, you have these automated machine learning tools which now learn from all the previous information and then build new algorithms. So you don't have to always wait for people to be available. These automatic algorithms can also discover um, interesting models and they even surprise us. Like they even surprise machine learning people while they build this kind of neural network that we would never have thought about before, but apparently works very well for this problem. Right? It's not a kind of design serendipity. And that's that's OpenML really allows that. Well, Kaggle is more like organized, um, like it's for challenges, um, it's for showing off that you can do uh, things well. It's very good for that. It's uh, and I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm very <laughs> enthusiastic about Kaggle as well. Uh, OpenML is more uh, designed to be like this more um, open play field uh, where people can build on a different place. And you can see OpenML being use all kinds of HTML tools, meta learning tools. Um, it really makes things available. We put a lot of, lot of effort into reproducibility. Like any result in OpenML is reproducible with a few lines of code, uh, which for instance, for Kaggle, it was not a priority, right? So Kaggle, it's, it's, you have a leaderboard. Most people who submit algorithms, they're not always sharing their code, of course. Um, while OpenML, the, the, the contract is like anything there's Open is reproducible. Um, it's like it's like it's it's a it's a different thing, right? It's, it's it's more like a forum where people come together and 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 build algorithms, share the results, and and make it available to anybody. You've talked uh, about the the sort of emergence of the possibility to begin doing meta learning on the data sets that are stored in um, with OpenML. Can you take us? through what sort of what meta learning actually is what what's the sort of higher goal of it are you looking to essentially predict and automatically run whole algorithms when people um are uploading data sets to it or are you looking to do much more of the suggestion type stuff and when you're producing these algorithms is it uh 
you know, are you producing completely random machine learning algorithms or does it tend to be like you're evolving the architectures of a neural network or you're evolving the hyperparameters of a particular model? How much of how much of the learning is actually being automated, I suppose? Yeah, so these are big topics, right? And um, let me just briefly summarize. So and there's two things here, right? There's automatic machine learning and it's meta learning. So automatic machine learning basically aims to automate building of machine learning systems, typically pipelines or, or neural architectures. Um, and this happens typically with some kind of search strategy. You design a space of possible pipelines, a space of possible models, uh, and then there's a search algorithm that searches efficiently uh, for the best model for your data set. Right? So say you have a new data set about maybe it's cancer research, you say, this is my data, this is my, this is my target. Uh, then there's an algorithm that says, well, I know the space of all possible pipelines. I'm now going to build the best ones. Um, there are different ways to do that. So one of them is evolution. Uh, so you start with a simple pipeline and you can gradually evolve it. You change things. Um, you do things like crossover. Like if you have two pipelines that work well, you, you try to cross them over, like the first part of this pipeline and the next part of that pipeline. Um, because maybe this pipeline does good pre-processing, but this pipeline has a better model, you combine them. Uh, and you, you kind of evolve towards um, the best pipeline or the same thing with neural networks. You start with simple neural networks and you add layers, you kind of evolve them into uh, larger neural networks that, that work well for your problem. There are th other techniques like um, Bayesian optimization, which is also very interesting. So there you first, you st try some things randomly as uh, so you build some models randomly and then you see which one works well. And then you build another model that then looks Okay, I, I've tried these things. So if you imagine a point space, I tried these points, and now based on this information, I'm going to predict where a better point is. And the better point gives you another model. Uh, and so it, it's from a couple of, it's, it's like humans often do things as well. It's very similar. So you build a couple of models, you say this works well, if this works and this works, uh, maybe that works better, right? So it, it builds a model that then predicts uh, which is a better model to try. That's Bayesian optimization. It's also a very powerful technique. Um, and there are other things um, that are very popular these days, like uh, random search, sped up in a certain way. Um, these are things like hyperband. It's kind of, you do random search, but instead of random trying random algorithms, you try random algorithms on a small part of your data, you see which one works well, and then you're going to um, look at um yeah you're going to focus on the the, the random algorithms that works that work well on small data sets you're going to train more data to see if they also work better on more data and the way to speed up random search but yeah this that brings us to meta learning because you can do this right um there's no magic here the problem is that your search space is so immensely large that it's not very efficient right um, and what meta learning does is, well, we don't have to start from scratch. We can look at what worked before. And as humans, we also do this. We, we know from experience this works, this doesn't work. We read it in papers or we try it ourselves and we transfer the knowledge into uh, new application. So meta learning, we look at what works, what doesn't work. So we can design a better search space or we can maybe um, push the search towards 
things that we think will work better. Like for instance, in base optimization, instead of, instead of starting randomly, we start with models which worked well in the past, right? If we start with the ones that work well in the past, it gives us a very big step up so we can find better models there. And so meta-learning, meta-learning is a broad field I have to, I have to add. So this is meta-learning applied to LGML, right? And because you can also, you can, you can meta-learn like um, activation functions, you can meta-learn initializations, you can meta-learn almost anything, right? Uh, meta-learning, basically you take a complex algorithm, you um, like, like a complex neural network, you um, parameterize some aspects, and then you learn that that thing, and you put it into the algorithm. So you, you, you can you can learn to learn in different ways. So meta learning in general means learning how to learn, and you can do, you can see that as a way of learning how to build an algorithm. But you could also see it much more fundamental in the sense that you learn how to do learning. Like you knew how to instead of if like if you build a neural network instead of starting from random weights, you start from good weights that you have pre learned somewhere. Um, or, yeah, instead of having a normal value activation, you learn activation function for a set of problems that work well. Um, yeah, and, and, and OpenMath has been very instrumental in this um, uh, because it gives you all that information, right? Before, you didn't have that. Now you can download millions of results, use that to, um, to then search better algorithms. And to give you a very concrete example is, for instance, something that AutoSQLearn does, which is one of these AutoML algorithms. So what they do is they have basically a memory of these are a thousand data sets from OpenML. And from these thousand data sets, these are the 10 best pipelines for each of them, right? And so if you give them a new data set, what they do is, okay, I'm going to look up which data sets are similar to this new data set and which pipelines, which models worked well on those similar data sets, and I'm going to start with those. Yeah. And this this happens automatically in, in uh, algorithms like AutoCycleLearn. It's something you can also do manually. Like if you're a biologist and you have a data set, you can look up which data sets of ML are there, uh, which ones are the best models, and I'm going to try these on my new data set. It's, it's like that. It's like that with an automated. A lot of these tools seems like stuff that will just make a lot of these... Uh sort of, I suppose, data science processes or, or, or processes to de that deal with data in any way, shape or form, a lot easier and a lot more fluid, which, which, is, which is nice. It allows you to actually get to what you're trying to do, which is either learn something from the data or use it in some specific way. Um, I think there's loads of people to, to sort of go away from this and go and, uh, you know, have a look at OpenML and, uh, see what it's like and see what to do with it. I'd like to thank you very much indeed for um, the time you've taken today uh, to talk to us about this stuff. It's been a real pleasure having you on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, then please take a few seconds to help us out by subscribing to the podcast on Apple or Spotify and leaving us a five-star review. Alternatively, please share the podcast on social media. It makes a huge difference to us. If you haven't already, please follow us on Twitter at The Biotech Pod, LinkedIn or Facebook at The Biotech Podcast. It's the best way to support this podcast.
Thank you for listening, and until next time, I wish you all the best.